Today I propose that we continue studying Genesis, but I'm going to do something unusual. As we have completed the first two chapters, I'm going to read just the first verse of chapter 3, and I hope that you might see a note of discord, a note of something really turning in a new direction just in that first verse. And Therefore, in order to get behind that and give it some background, I'm going to go to two Old Testament passages. You can try to, how many fingers you have, get your fingers into Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. I'll read from both of those passages as well. From God's Word, Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman... Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? There are mysteries here. Who is this speaking? How are we to understand this new note that's being introduced? Before we go fully into chapter 3, I propose that we look behind the scenes as far as the Bible makes it possible. Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 28. God is speaking a prophecy of condemnation against a particular human king, the king of a city called Tyre, a seaport city on the Mediterranean that was once very powerful. Listen to this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and made a spectacle of you before kings. And then this in a similar prophecy of condemnation upon a particular human ruler, the ruler of Babylon who opposed God's people, Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, You who once laid low the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. 
I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit, Those who see you stare at you and ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? This is the word of God. Father, help us to see no more than what you have revealed, but no less. Make us wise in understanding deep things that you have revealed. We ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The most difficult moral question for Christianity is certainly the question of the mysterious origin of evil and why God would permit it to exist. On September 11, 2001, more than one news reporter vocalized openly the question, where was God when the Twin Towers fell to the earth and thousands died? That same question can be personalized over and over as lives are snuffed out in our midst by cancer or by traffic accidents. And we well know that there are thousands of people who claim that the great reason they cannot or say they cannot, have faith in the Bible's God is because evil exists and seems to trample on human life without any pity or any kind of pattern as to how and why it occurs. I believe that before the rise of Islamic terrorism in the last couple of decades, Western countries were often a little bit embarrassed to use the word evil. After all, it's a religious word. I remember being surprised when Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union the evil empire. I thought he was becoming a little more theological than most presidents are normally inclined to be when he said that. And probably there were some people that scoffed at that a little bit and thought Reagan was dipping into biblical language that had no place in in the public and governmental square. But now in the face of the senseless killings of strangers by suicide bombers witnessed in Bombay, India this past week, and other instances too long to mention, the naive belief that many have in the basic goodness of people just doesn't stand the test of what is going on in the everyday headlines of this world. Evil, indeed, is the darkest, most problematic issue of human life. It's the biggest problem faced by philosophy or by any religion. There are many purely pragmatic thinkers who say, well, the existence of evil demonstrates this. Either God is not all-powerful because he doesn't stop it, or he is not good and loving enough to care about the pain that humanity experiences. And so many skeptics call the existence of evil the Achilles heel of Christianity. 
Well, in Genesis 1, we studied the origin of the known universe. In Genesis 2, we basically saw the origin of humanity as male and female. And if you really want to boil Genesis down to simple topics, you could say in Genesis 3, we're going to deal with the origin of evil on planet Earth. It will smack us in the face from verse 1 onward in Genesis 3. The problem is, we are not told in Genesis 3 how this thing originated. Was it simply born right here as a man and a woman disobeyed God? Or does it somehow have even a pre-existence to this? Who or what is this creature called the serpent? I will seek next week to show you that he is not the talking snake that your Sunday school pictures pictured him to be. I propose to lift a curtain here and to have you look into some deep things of the Scripture that we are not told about in a a clearly defined three-dimensional picture, but that Scripture does whisper about in hints and definite clues that it leaves us to understand how it is that the Creator's perfect universe all too quickly became so imperfect and so stained with this dark and universal rebellion that all human beings participate in. Now, yes, the Bible does insist that there is something epic happening in Genesis 3, that as the first man and the first woman disobey God by a rational choice, do it knowingly, that they did commit what is often called the original sin, which actually touches us and brings us into its shadow. And we say that isn't fair. But the point is, we would have done what they did, and we prove it by doing it every single day. And so you and I are also sources and conduits of evil choices as human beings. And in fact, while some are so busy shaking their fist at heaven and blaming God, they do not stop to consider the fact that other than a purely natural disaster with a purely natural cause, most acts of great bloodshed or cruelty or tragedy are actually authored by human beings. Even a few weeks ago, the wildfires in California, you saw the tragedies of Multi-million dollar homes, homes of stars of Hollywood that are household names, great, vast mansions being burned by bonfires. Oh, what, what a tragedy, people cried out as their homes were burning. Well, lo and behold, we find out that it all was traced by arson investigators to a bonfire left by some college students after an all-night party, a bonfire that began to burn out of control. Can we trace human evil in the Bible this way, back to the place where the first match was dropped into combustible material? The answer is we don't have such a plain chapter and verse that I can go to and say, here it is. Here is is God's bold strokes, well-depicted picture of this. But we do have what constitute more than just indirect hints and sidebar statements, especially in the Old Testament, about the origin and character of Satan. 
That is how we can begin to fill in some blanks. That's what I hope to do for you today as background so that next time, Lord willing, we could go forward to understand Genesis 3 better. First of all, of two points I'll make today, I emphasize this one. Personal evil began before Eden with an unseen rebellion in heaven. Now, our world of 2008, in many quarters, is fairly skeptical about unseen things, about supernatural beings, angels, demons, and so on. And yet, interestingly, it's also on another side, a world more absorbed in the occult than any society has ever been. But the Bible teaches us that the universe is actually populated by tens of thousands, if not millions of normally unseen beings who nevertheless truly exist, created by God and existing to do His bidding. It would be nice if if God had inserted it here, perhaps, or maybe between chapters 1 and 2, we would fancifully think He could have put in a paragraph and said, well, when I was creating, I also made the angels, and, and here's what they're all about, and and how things happened with them. Well, it isn't in Genesis that way. But it is implied clearly enough in Scripture that we can fill some things in. We count the book of Job to be one of the earliest books of the Bible. We don't know the dating of it. It comes from an ancient time and is accounted to be one of the older writings of the Scripture. And in Job chapter 1, in one of these old books, we have this statement. Now the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came with them. And Job goes on to weave a pattern, a duel, you might think of it, between God and Satan with Job as the battlefield. And then in the, near the end of that book, Job 38 verse 7 has... God speaking to Job about his work of creation, and he speaks of a time before any human eye was there to see things, and it's described as poetry, when the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy. Well, there's a hint, a solid hint that God made angels, and they sang his praise in the early stages of creation. Way over in the New Testament, the book of Colossians chapter 1 has a declaration. Colossians 1.16 says of Christ in talking about His role as a creator, as God's co-creator, part of the Trinity, that all things were created that are in heaven or on earth by Him, things both visible and invisible. There's another clue. The creation has dimensions that are made by God, but they are not visible to human eyes. We know a little bit about angels in the Bible. It's quite a study, actually. There are many, many mentions of them, some 300 times in the Bible. Angels are mentioned. They can appear in human form, and yet they are not seen unless they will to be seen or desire to be seen on some errand from God. And the word angel, after all, simply means messenger. They are God's servants, His messengers. They can appear in such a way that they are awesome, and men want to fall down and worship them. But properly, at least, they forbid that and tell men not to do so. 
we know there's some kind of hierarchy among them. Jude chapter 9 talks about a being called Michael, good name, and calls him an archangel, an angel over other angels. And that hierarchy is elsewhere expressed in the New Testament when we talk about principalities and powers, kingdoms and powers that are not seen, but nevertheless are very real. Ephesians 6.12 says there are spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That should be a jarring thought. When you think of the word heaven, you don't think of wickedness. But the Scripture says in the heights of, of God's unseen creation, spiritual wickedness dwells. How in the world, or how out of the world would be a better way to say it, did this ever come to be? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 has a broad hint about it, and it's repeated in similar words in the book of Jude. 2 Peter 2, 4 says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Wow, there's a piercing insight. Angels created beings who were to serve God at some point sinned. Now, we're not told when that happened or in what sequence with the events in the world it happened, and yet it would seem, as we're going to unfold in a moment, that it had to have happened before, historically, before the events of Genesis 3. And it was a historic occurrence. In fact, 2 Peter 2 puts it on the same plane as the, the flood that happens in, in Noah's time. Angels fell. Noah experienced a flood. God is talking about events of history, and that is a, an event of history. And so we have another clue, a very enigmatic one that's often debated about, in Luke chapter 10 from the words of Jesus himself. And it's something that when he says it sounds so out of place, you wonder, what is he talking about? In Luke 10.18, Jesus told his disciples, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, there's a biblical thesis here, and it is that Satan, also called Lucifer, was the mastermind behind the terrible mess that we call evil on a cosmic scale. He was a created being. He is a created being. Never forget that. He is not God's rival. He is not God's equal in any sense. He is a ruined angel created by God and held under the divine rule of God, the very name Satan actually means opposition, adversary. Now, another thing we know about this whole realm of things is that in the Bible, different ranks or types of angels are spoken of. You probably know the names of cherubim and seraphim. It appears that the cherubim are the highest rank, those who, in effect, guard the immediate presence of God. Well, Ezekiel 28.14, a text I read this morning, says that Lucifer was originally a guardian cherub, which tells us he was originally of the highest rank or among the highest ranking of the angelic host of God. And so, evidently, the most spectacular sin of all time 
was when one holy angel fell in love with his own glory and ambition more than he was in love with God, his creator. We're not told how. We're not told why. We're not told when. There's still mystery here. We are told by firm implication that this took place. Now, I read for you from two Old Testament passages, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Make no mistake about it. These passages, first of all, they are prophecy, and they are prophecy directed at real human rulers in real historic situations. The Ezekiel passage speaks about a ruler, a king of the city of Tyre, a very mighty port city of the eastern Mediterranean coast, which oppressed God's people and could have had great influence for good, but instead had great influence for evil. And we know from history of battles against the remarkable, the city of Tyre is an interesting thing to study. It was a city built on a little isthmus, hard word to say, a little channel of land that goes out to a small island. And Alexander the Great had a tremendous siege against the city of Tyre and finally conquered it only by building siege ramps out through the sea. Well, this king of Tyre is being indicted in Ezekiel 28. And likewise, the ruler of Babylon, maybe a more familiar nation that opposed God's people, is being indicted in Isaiah 14. And those passages are speaking against those real human beings. However, These are passages that make you aware of the remarkable function of prophecy in the Bible, which often can speak of reality at a surface level and at other levels beneath at the same time. And it's very hard to read those texts without being aware that someone or something is being spoken of that is more than a mere man, great and and powerful and rich as these monarchs might have been. If you glance again at Ezekiel 28, you read some remarkable language there that has to be explained somehow when that person is addressed as saying, you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. And verse 16, so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub. It really sounds like the prophet of God, who is God's spokesman, is speaking to an evil power that is behind this human being who had worked great oppression and great sin. Isaiah 14 goes further with this sneak peek behind the curtains. This time, the one being indicted is is called someone who has fallen from heaven. And he's named, O morning star, son of the dawn. We think that title might be used here, in effect, to mock Satan, who was taking a title, morning star, that properly is the title of Christ. If you see in the book of Revelation and other places, Jesus is called the bright and morning star. That's his title. His title as the great supreme king. And it appears to be the idea that Satan took that title and tried to make it his own and now is being mocked for wearing it. And then in Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, 
The crime is spelled out, perhaps in the best way it could be. That he sought to make himself like the most high. You shouldn't need any assistance having it interpreted for you who the most high is. It's one of the great names for God. The one of whom there is no higher. But Satan said, I will be like him. I see God. Why can't I be like him? I have a throne. I have authority. I want more. I want the most, in fact. And notice in this text of Isaiah 14, the phrases that repeat as he says, I will ascend. I will raise myself. I will make myself. Do you see the first great proud ego asserting itself of all the created beings God has ever made, focused on self-exaltation and moving away from God. Now, yes, these are fragments and these are pieces. And Maybe someone says, is that all you've got? Well, I tell you, there's more if we had time to go into it today. More hints, more pieces that could be brought out from both Old Testament and New. But what we do have here is a biblical suggestion that Satan was the arch ruler of the first revolt against God. Thrust from his place, he now inhabits the earth. Jesus called him the prince of the power of the air or the prince of this world. He said that he had many subjects. He told unbelievers, you are of your father, the devil. And we're told other places that thousands more angels evidently joined in this rebellion. And there are many others who serve this powerful but created enemy of God. And so ever after this, evil is not a thing. It's not an abstract concept. It is a choice. It's a choice to say, I will, instead of choosing to believe God or obey Him. In fact, the shortest definition of any sin might be a creature saying, I will in contradiction to God. I will take of the tree. doesn't matter that God has said I shouldn't. I will have it. There isn't any reason why I should not. And that's exactly how we sin day after day. And so we see behind the curtain this primordial pre-Eden origin of an unseen rebellion in heaven. But secondly today, I believe the Bible teaches this. We go from the how, perhaps, to the why. That God mysteriously permits evil since by conquering it in Christ, he will ultimately gain greater glory. God mysteriously permits evil since by conquering it in Christ, he will gain greater glory. One of the great minds of the 20th century, of course, was the mind of Albert Einstein. They actually have Einstein's brain somewhere in a laboratory. I'm not sure what they've ever learned from it, but there haven't been too many brains like his. And Einstein, of course, thought about the great metaphysical questions and probed into physics in new ways where you or I cannot follow him. But he also thought about God. Although born a Jew, he was not orthodox in his Judaism. In fact, he deliberately rejected any orthodox faith or any church, but he thought a lot about God. 
Einstein was always struggling with how God could fit in the universe that he understood, which was a cause and effect physical universe. And he said, when I see the evil, when I see the suffering, you have to remember he was a refugee from Hitler who came to this country to escape the Holocaust. He said, I can't see where God fits in. If evil was caused, who caused it? And if God caused it, in so many words, I'm paraphrasing, but Einstein would have said, he's a monster. How could such a one be God? Well, here are some things the Scripture declares about why God permits evil, even though he did not create it. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does he tempt any man. 1 John 2.16 says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. We're taught that God is holy and set apart from sin. Habakkuk said his eyes are too pure to even look upon evil. When God created both angels and humans, he gave them intelligence. He gave them reason. He gave them choice because that was part of his image that we had to have if we had his image. But evil has its root in any choice made to turn from God and serve yourself. And so the biblical view is that God did not create evil, and yet indeed he did create the beings who abused their choice and spawned evil. Would God have permitted evil if he thought it was going to have the final word? If it would conquer him somehow and put him down and make him unnecessary or, or make him unthinkable? No, he wouldn't. You see, Satan, once again, is not eternal. He is not God's equal. He is created, and he will be destroyed. And the Bible says that not only will he be destroyed, but so will all his works along with him. The prince of this world masterminded a historic beginning of evil that spread through humanity, and God knows the appointed end of this and will bring it about. He knows that he can overrule evil. But there's something even greater to say here about why he permits evil and how, in a sense, God can be vindicated from the charge that so many make against him. John Stott perhaps said it well. He said, I never could believe in God at all unless it were for the cross. In a world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune from pain? Evil has a cost. It has many costs that people pay in their lives all the time. But are human beings the only one who pay the cost of evil? The waves of wrong and injustice and suffering among people? You see, these things cannot disprove the Bible's God who put himself on the hook at Calvary to atone for evil's harm to bear its cost, and to provide for its downfall. In Jesus Christ, God is not immune from evil. He plumbed the depths of it. He took it on himself when no necessity made that his burden. 
And so, because sin exists, God, you see, has the opportunity to display things that you wouldn't see otherwise. His mercy, His forgiveness, His grace, even His wrath against sin. We learn who God is. We learn about His might. We learn about His sovereignty. God allowed sin so that we might discover that only He is greater than it is. And He can destroy it. That is absolutely guaranteed at the cross. Colossians 2.15 has a great word. It puts the victory of Christ into the largest possible pictorial setting there when it says Christ canceled the law's written code and nailed it to the cross. He disarmed powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in the cross. Yes, the cross was a redemption price from my sin and yours, but it was also a victory. It was the victory of God over the power of evil. People like Einstein who are stumped, and many are stumped by the problem of evil, you see, they're really stumped before the wrong mystery. Once evil roared out of heaven and Satan the usurper came upon us, Grace made its appearance and proved to be stronger so that the grand mystery of all mysteries that ought to stump people and leave them in awe is the mystery of the grace of God. Why should God save a single sinful person? Why should a holy God enter into this mess? That's the mystery, ladies and gentlemen. That's the deeper mystery. And it's the mystery that leaves Christians with trust and with hope that this God who we know in Jesus Christ is greater than every kind of evil. For we, after all, are worse off than our own imaginations ever depict ourselves to be. We are in a dreadful mess. Our natural condition before the throne of our perfect Creator is a desperate condition, but God's unexplainable, mysterious, profound, enormous grace offers believers in Jesus Christ divine power to be made perfect and new and whole and at peace with God so that eternally we will see his face. We have perspective now, you see. Satan is a natural-born liar and a murderer. Jesus said he roves this world seeking people to devour. He loves to disrupt your life. He loves to disrupt the church. But he only rules in a subordinate way. It seems to us like he's an attack dog on a long leash. But don't forget the leash. The leash which God holds in his omnipotent hand. Revelation 20 predicts that final day when it says the devil who deceived men will be thrown into a lake of burning fire and there tormented day and night forever. God holds the leash. God has appointed the end. God will be the victor. This means that as believers in Christ, as new creations in Jesus Christ, you aren't helpless in the grip of evil. Yes, it touches your life. It may even ravage your life depending on terrible choices you may make or others may make. And some of its effects indeed do remain in you in residual ways, but evil does not rule and reign over anyone who is purchased by the victory of Christ. It remains, but it doesn't reign. Don't ever forget that. 
You have the Holy Spirit's vision to see evil for what it is. You can resist it. You can walk away, not easily, sometimes only with prayer and great struggle, but you can do it. Because God, who is called holy, 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 is the mighty one who reigns over these things. So never give in to the idea that because of seemingly random evil all around us, life is absurd. Never yield to the notion that God is responsible for sin or that he is to be blamed for tragedy. He cannot be unrighteous in the way he governs history towards his perfectly appointed ends. And never doubt that God is totally for you because of what he has done in Christ Jesus. Through the wonder of the cross, our Father in heaven does not have to prove himself to anyone any further than he has already. And so with Paul, in his triumphant statement in Romans 11, we can say how unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. This area is a mystery indeed. But we are left saying with Paul, from him, through him, unto him are all things. And to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father in deep places where our minds cannot go. We see your hand. We know you have gone before. We know you are at work. We thank you for the Scripture reporting things that are true. We thank you for foundations to stand on in shaky places. We thank you, most of all, for the cross of Jesus as our anchor point in the midst of human pain. Thank you for the one who went through the worst that Satan could conjure to bring us to you. We ask your work in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.